Okay, so let's, uh, let's just start with, uh, with a prayer for all these different things that we've spoken about. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you to focus upon you and upon your Son and upon his return. And we pray for him to come back really soon, even this week. And we pray that we might live aware that he can come at any moment and to love him and want him to come back. So please open our eyes to your word now that you will speak to us and that we will, as it were, meet your son again in the pages of, of the scriptures. And we pray, Father, that you be with all of us in the stuff that we go through because we know that you're trying to prepare us to come into your kingdom. And we pray that we'll respond as you and others respond, that we'll get it, that we'll learn the lesson more quickly. Pray, Father, for all those who are suffering in various sort of really acute ways. Please all those people baptized in Israel last couple of days. Pray that you be with them and give them your spirit and work with them and sanctify them and bring them, Father, to the everlasting life of your kingdom. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Right, so I'm going to go on to the book of Acts now and we're going to go through um, Acts. So we'll start with chapter 1. Now, please, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And then he also wrote this book, Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And then there's two things sort of linked together, as we'll see. So he says, the former account, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke, I made over the office concerning all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So he's saying, yeah, when I wrote the Gospel of Luke about Jesus, that is what Jesus began to do and to teach. And the impression can be that Jesus did his work, he lived, he died, rose again, went up to heaven, and that was like over. But the point is, this is what Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that he is continuing to act, that is to do things, he's continuing to teach. He's just as real now as he was in the days of the uh, of, of the. The, the time of the Gospels, where for three and a half years he was in his ministry. I think Luke's point is that he is continuing, he's absolutely continuing that. And he's writing a guy called Theophilus. We don't know who that is, but uh, it seems that he's trying to persuade this guy to believe in the Gospel. That's why he addresses these things to him. So, he says, Jesus, uh, the former account of my name, I wrote the Gospel, uh, of Luke, about what Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day in which he was received up after that he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom, after his suffering, he also showed by many convincing proofs that he was alive, being seen by them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Look, in his lifetime, the Lord had said many times, I tell you, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be taken by the Jews, given to the Romans, abused, crucified, and after three days I will rise again. So clear. And yet, after three days, the disciples are all con like confused and depressed. He's died. We thought he was going to save us, but he's dead. And that's why Jesus says that you fools and slow of heart to believe all that I told you and the prophets said. And that the slowness of the disciples to get it, to get the obvious, is prophetic. It's so slow. 
so slow to get the obvious. Well, he's died, just as he said, crucified, just as he said, and three days later he rose from the dead, just as he said. Exactly as he said. So, why didn't they get it? It was so obvious. And now when he does rise from the dead, and the women come and tell the disciples, we've seen the risen Jesus. They're like, oh, you're crazy. You have him out of your terms. Mary Magdalene, oh, you're crazy. You just, of course he's not, he's dead. What do you mean you saw Jesus? And yet, you see, the disciples are confessing, confessing their own weakness, because it's them who wrote these records. And they're going out and trying to persuade people. He who believes that Jesus died and rose again will be, and is baptized and be saved. He that doesn't believe it will not be saved. But they're saying, you know what, we didn't get it. So on the basis of their own weakness, their own fallibility, oh, I'm telling you to believe this, but you know what, I didn't believe it to start with. Yeah. People are more attracted to you. By your weakness, you attract people, as it were. Uh, so it's not a case of, you know, the, uh, the perfect pastor or the bishop or the, the priest or whoever dressed in white and all very pious. That's not going to persuade anybody. What is going to persuade people is, you know, the more real, the more credible. That, that, that's what persuades people. And uh, I had a discussion yesterday, not spelling my dear friend Mark's blushes, but baptized, the other day, we, we baptised these folks in um, Israel, and Mark had a, you know, a cigarette, they're like, oh, you smoke, you're a man of God, you smoke a cigarette, that's, that's not right. Uh, you know, people might not come to the Lord because of that. And I was talking to Mark about it, I said, you know what, the fact you smoke, probably brings more people to Jesus than if you gave up smoking. I mean, you get what I mean. I'm not saying it's a good thing to do. But I'm saying that. The more real, the more credible. Now, I'm not saying, oh, we'll all start smoking, guys. You're going to bring loads of people to Jesus. You know what I'm saying. But the more real, the more credible. So these disciples are saying that, well, you know, we we didn't get the stuff. He's risen from the dead, and he's standing there in front of them. You know, one time he says, look at my hands. They've got holes in. Look at my feet. They've got holes in where the nails had gone. But he has to give them many convincing proofs. They still didn't get it. As I keep telling them, I'll give you another proof. He eats something. Like, you see I'm real? I'm not a ghost. Give me some fish. They give him some boiled fish, and he eats it. They were so slow. I think that's what the point is. <laughs> and being and assembling together with them to eat, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. But John indeed baptized with water, but soon you will be baptized of the Holy Spirit. So, I don't think he was with them all the time in those 40 days. This is after he resurrected, it's 40 days on earth, and then he ascends to heaven. But it says that during that time he assembled with them to eat. He ate with them. And they met together to eat. And you see how the story is going to go on. You see the early church developing. They meet together to eat with Jesus in what we would call the breaking of bread. So you see what we're doing here in, in humility on a very small scale, taking bread and juice in memory of his body, his blood, This is continuing the spirit of how it was at the very beginning of Christianity. Jesus rose from the dead, and he meets together with the disciples, and they eat, and they drink together. 
And as I said to you before, there he is in the midst of us, where two or three are gathered together, let alone twenty of us or more. There is he in the middle of us. Just, we can't see him, but he's here. That's why I like to say, you know, let's have some reverence when we take the bread and the cup, you know? Because he is here, in that sense, um, amongst us. And we are eating with him. Um, I don't mean you've got to dress up, you know, all nicely, go to church and all this kind of stuff. But you know, I don't do that myself. But also, with some reverence for the fact that he is amongst us. Of course, he's with you on your own. It doesn't mean when you walk out of this place and get on the bus to go home that, oh, well, Jesus isn't with me. No, he's still with you. But I mean, in this collective sense, eating and drinking together, you see, Jesus is real. It's not an idea in our head. It's not some religion. Yes, yeah, do it on Sunday. He's real. This Jesus who was here is now up there, but he's spiritually here with us, and he will come again, as we shall see. Well, he said, you stay in Jerusalem, because I want to give you the Holy Spirit. John indeed baptized you with water, but soon you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, there's a difference between John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized in the Spirit. You've got to be baptized in water, so that you can receive the gift of the Spirit. And that's what he says in John 3, that unless someone is born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. You're baptized with water. This is a one-time thing where you go in the water, you go into the water, it's like his death, you come out of the water, it's like his resurrection. But you are baptized in the Spirit. Now I wonder if that is a hint that the idea of baptism in the Spirit is that his Spirit, his mind, his personality comes in into you and you go into that Spirit, into that Spirit of being and living. A new pair of eyes, a new psychology. That's what baptism in the spirit is, I suggest. Now, a lot of talk these days about the external signs, the miracles, the tongues, and sort of stuff. But, you know, I'm not into all that. Leave, leave that. I think that was there in the first century. That is here today, so it is. But the essence is the internal change. That is a physical external witness. But the essence is the internal change. That you see things differently. You are baptized in the spirit. Now, it's no good talking in tongues on a Sunday and going out living the life of, you know, Joe blowing the world, um, all the way through, uh, the rest of the week, speeding, cheating, fornicating, and all the rest of it, and then, oh, oh, oh I'm in the spirit now on Sunday. No, 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 that, that's, that's fake. The real deal is that we are changed internally. See, to be spiritually minded, that is what it's all about. So that your whole heart and soul, you're with him, you wake up in the morning, you're thinking of him when you go to bed at night. Your last thought is you, Jesus. You're, you're, you're with him. But that's what it is. That, that's what it is to be baptized in the Spirit. So, therefore, when they came together, they kept on asking him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, we want it now. You've died, risen, and uh, you're, you're here. Well, is this kingdom of God going to start now? It's the old question, when's Jesus coming back? And we're like children on a long car journey. Are we nearly there yet? You know, it's quite normal. Are we, are we there? And it's quite normal. And, you know, you get all these people saying, oh, Jesus is coming uh, on, uh, on the 6th of June, 2025. 6 o'clock in the afternoon, in one or whatever. No. No. 
because yeah, Jesus is going to go on and say nobody knows. But they were asking, and you, know, you see in their humanity, you see, you know, us not, because we want to know when's Jesus coming back. Well, I've lived long enough to have heard it all. You know, oh, you know, oh, he's coming back uh, very soon because it's now 40 years after the foundation of the state of Israel, 1988. Well, that was a big date. Oh, the Lord must be back by 1988. No. Oh, year 2000. Oh, wow, it's all coming to the end. It's going to be, uh, you know, computers are going to break down. It's going to be back. And so it goes on and on. Um, Jesus will come. Jesus will come. But we cannot say for sure when. Marzella, if you want a chicken, can you go to the bar around the back and tell them to put another chicken on your account? My account, my account. Um, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. It's as simple as that. But they said, oh, you know, when are you, when's it going to happen? And you notice how they talk about it. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Actually, the kingdom of God on earth is going to be a restoration of the kingdom of Israel. In the past, God was the king of Israel, and they were his kingdom. And the kings of Judah ruled on the throne of David in Jerusalem. All that all ended when they sinned and they were taken away, etc. But it's going to be restored. And the coming of Jesus is the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And so, what I'm trying to say is that the, the kingdom of God is going to literally be here on earth. And, you know, you can walk around this planet, and you can even go to Jerusalem and say, oh wow, this is Jerusalem. One day the feet of Jesus of Nazareth will be there. One day the feet of Jesus of Nazareth will be here in Croydon. One day he will be here. You see, it's all very literal. That's my point. And Jesus says, well, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set within his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses and my martyrs, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. <clears throat> and so, I think what he's saying is, no, there is not a calendar date. Because the time is under God's authority. But you go and be witnesses to the Jews and of our world. So I think what he's saying is, no, there is not a calendar date. There is not a date in God's calendar with a red circle around it. Oh, Jesus is coming back then. But there are conditions. For example, the Lord says, when the gospel of the kingdom has gone into all the earth, then shall the end come. The quicker we take, it, take the gospel out into all the world, the quicker the Lord will come. When there is fruit on the fig tree, Jesus says, and I take that to be spiritual fruit in the fig tree nation, which is the people of Israel, the generation that sees that will not pass until it comes back. So, I would suggest that there are conditions. It is like saying to a child, if you clean your room every day for seven days without fail, then you will get whatever it is. You say, if you do it for seven days without fail, then you will get whatever it is, a bicycle or whatever it might be. You have not set a calendar date for the kid to get the bicycle. Because a kid might not clean his room every seven days, but seven days running. It's conditional. And so that is how I see the date of the Lord's coming. 
Although, as we've discussed before, the state of the world does seem to require the Lord to come soon, and yes, there are Bible prophecies, especially relating to Israel and the Middle East, that appear to be being fulfilled. So yeah, we can live in pretty good hope that the Lord will come soon. And if the Lord doesn't come soon, we're going to scribble ourselves as a race, as a planet, that's quite obvious. Uh, but he won't let that happen. He's not going to let the earth be destroyed. So, the point is, he's saying, you're asking me when, I'm, when it's going to happen. You go and preach. You see what I'm saying about conditions? You're asking me when it's going to happen. I'm not telling you. You don't know. It's under God's authority. You go and preach. And so you see, the quicker we spread the gospel to the whole planet, the quicker the Lord will come. And so, I say, yesterday, um, yeah, we were in Israel, uh, well, 11 people baptized in Israel. Praise the Lord. If one by one, yeah, one day, if there'll be a baptism that's the last one. Yeah, Paul says, until the full number of the Gentiles be come in. So, what was your name? Bill, yeah? Or Mark? Mark. Yeah, so Mark, mate, if you, if you do the baptism this afternoon, you might be the last one. You might be the last one, like you. Possible. Possible, yeah. But you might not, yeah. Um, so, that, that's how it goes. And um, it's quite clear, you will be my witnesses. And the word for witness and the word for martyr are the same. It is Mark, Marturian. Uh, we got a Greek. A Greek here can tell us that. That to witness and to be a martyr, it's the same. And you think, oh, does that mean they've all got to be martyred, they've all got to die? No. But actually it is your suffering for the Lord that makes you, in that sense, a witness. Uh, that's why I use this word martyrion, which means to be a martyr. This is the word translated witness. That's why Augustine, not going to go with that guy too much, but he said that uh, every Christian is a martyr. And that is how it is. It's not that, oh, you know, oh, the, the, the holy you know, martyrs who gave their lives, like Stephen, you know, and others who gave their lives, or burnt at the stake and all that stuff. <coughs> yes, wonderful. But you know, every one of us is like that. You know, Christianity is not a spectator sport, a spectator religion, where you're, you're looking at all the wonderful examples of other people, you are the one. You are the martyr. You are the one who gave up that career that you could have had. That relationship you could have had. This or that. That actually you gave up because of your belief. Maybe not consciously, but you shied away from a path that you knew was not, that's not for me. That's not for me. Because of your Christian principle. You may not have done it consciously, but I reckon we've all done it. That we could have ended up with a smarter life. But something in us, because of our Christian conscience, made us, no, that's not for me, that's not my way. And so we ended up not, you know, apparently having the amazing life. Yeah, we're all little martyrs in our own way. Could be that you lost a relationship, even come into divorce or whatever, because, well, you went your way. And he or she wanted to go the way of the flesh, the way of the world. That is often how it is. We are little martyrs. And it is that martyrdom that is our witness. And he says, you've got to do this both in Jerusalem, that's where they were, in all Judea, that's the area around Jerusalem. In Samaria, um, well, that's where the Samaritans lived, who were half-castes. They were half 
mixed Jewish and Assyrian, Gentile, etc. And then to the whole earth. They see how gentle the Lord was. He knew that these were Jews he was talking to. That for them the idea of preaching to the Gentile, baptizing a Gentile was so difficult to get their head around. So he gave them very gently. So you're going to start off in Jerusalem, you know, preaching to your own people like Peter did. Um, and then in Judea, yeah, go and take it out to other Jews. And then Samaria, <coughs> mixed people, and then to the, to the Gentiles. When you read through the Acts of the Apostles, you're going to see, uh, oh, they struggled with this. And then you read Paul's letters, oh, the Jewish Christians were saying, no, 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 no Gentiles, we mustn't have Gentiles in the church. Well, if they want to come into the church, only Gentile men can come, and if they're circumcised, then we can baptize them. Right, right, right. You think, guys, you never really listened to what Jesus said? <clears throat> they didn't. It was so obvious that the gospel was intended to go to the whole planet, of course. Uh, but it didn't. Uh, because they were like, oh, no, 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 we can't preach to, to Gentiles. They've got to become Jews and be circumcised, all this kind of stuff. So my point is that the most simple, basic teaching of Jesus can be as clear as anything, like him saying, I'm going to die and after three days I rise again. It can be clear as daylight, there's no rocket science involved in understanding it. It's not difficult to get it. And we've all got that same tendency, that the message of the cross is as simple as that, that Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures, he died, after three days he rose again, ascended to heaven, and the same Jesus will come again, and we who are baptized into him will live forever. Simple as that. It's not difficult. There actually are not terms and conditions attached. It is that simple. But we don't get it. We just think, ah, well, I'm a bit of a sinner. I'm this, I'm that, oh, I'm not perfect. Oh, dear, no, I don't know. It's good for other people. Maybe not, I don't know about me. Now, we don't get the most simple, basic statements. Unfortunately. And we all think, oh no, I'm quite a smart person. I only cross a, a street when I see the little green green sign up here and I stay there when there's a red sign and I don't jump red lights when I'm driving. You know, I'm a sensible person. And maybe you are, but when it comes to spiritual things, we are we are very dumb, we're very stupid. And the simple truth, the simplest truth in that sense is that God loves us through his son and Jesus loves you and has a special number on you, died for you and rose again. And please, I want to save you. I love you. I want you to live forever. I'll forgive you your sins. I know about your sins are scribbled. They're done. Dealt with. I'll forgive you. It's not rocket science, but we make it difficult. And it's the same with them. You know, Jesus said, I'm going to die and rise again after three days. Oh, no, no. No, his body's decomposed by now. What do you mean you saw Jesus? He's not, he's dead. Same here. I'm risen. Now you guys go, you Jews, go to all the world and tell the Gentiles, the non-Jews, about the gospel. Or oh, we can't do that. They've got to be circumcised. He says, go and do it. You know? It's not difficult. And when he said these things, as they were watching, he was taken up, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And then the angels are going to say, and Jesus is going to come back in the same way. Well, the cloud that received him 
Well, it says that when he comes again, he will come with a cloud of angels. And a cloud received him. Well, I don't think it was a cloud of water droplets. It's a cloud of angels. Pretty clearly. And when he comes again, in the same way as he went into heaven, so he will come back. He says himself, I'm coming back with the angels. But there will be clouds of angels that come with Jesus. So when he comes back, it's not going to be one person. Jesus coming down you know, through the sky. It's going to be him plus loads of angels. And when we come to the day of judgment, we're also told the angels are going to be there. You just think about the angels for a bit. Um, well, it says here, while they were looking earnestly in the heaven, they were looking up there, oh, two men stood by them in white clothing. Angels. The angels are all God's ministers. Right? They are God's servants, doing his will. And I do believe in this thing we were talking about the other day, the other day about guardian angels, that his angels are servants, serving his purpose, and serving those who will be saved. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who are his people. So I do think we do have an angel. I do think we do. And wouldn't it be wonderful when the Lord comes back that you talk not just with Jesus, but with your angel? Now, I often said to people, you know, in my life there were times, quite a few times, when somebody appeared out of thin air and saved me from a very difficult situation, and I turned to look, and they were gone. And when I've said that, and given some examples, so many people have come up and said, oh, oh you know what, I had the same thing. Somebody was telling me, oh, it was back in Latvia, oh, when I was a youngster, I was out swimming, and I got carried away out to sea, and some bloke appeared and just saved me and got me back to, to the beach, and then I, I turned to thank him, and he wasn't there. He said, what do you mean? I said, yes, that's what I mean. That somebody appears. And I think we've all had that, and I think that is our angel. And you can't see angels, but they appear on earth and they may, they may work through human beings. But the wonderful thing is, Jesus is coming back with his angels. And he's not coming back alone. And we're going to meet our angel. Like, oh, Duncan, you didn't realise how I saved you. You were driving on that road and there was a car that just went whashed it behind you and caused an accident and killed you. Uh, but I saved you by two millimetres. Oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, thank you. You know, there's going to be loads of things like that. Stuff you didn't even realise. So, this is the uh, thing that the angels received him. And then two angels stand by them in white clothing. Now, angels always appear on earth in the form of men. And... I have said before that I don't expect anyone to believe this, even my wife doesn't fully agree with me, but I think, this is what I think, that God is a person. And when we read that God made man in his own image and after his own likeness, I would say that is not a spiritual likeness because naturally we are not like him. But that we are made physically in his image, in the sense that he also is a person. Now, as soon as you start going too far, saying, oh, has God got hair? Has God got, you know, whatever, eyebrows? Then, then it, it, 
what size it's got, then I think we start to get to that which is uh, inappropriate. Just inappropriate, and we don't know. But uh, what I'm saying is that God, for me, is not a cloud. God is not a, an idea, a, a wisp of ether or spirit or something, like a cloud. God is a real person. He has an actual location in heaven. And we are made in his image. And the idea of being baptised is that we are baptised into the Lord Jesus, who is his son, who we are told is the express image of the Father, so that we might be mentally transformed into his image. And so, it's no surprise to me that the angels, who likewise are you know, in God's image, that they appear on earth in human form. So this is what I'm saying, that God has some kind of form. And it helps when you pray to God to realise that. That our Father, who is in heaven, I don't think you'll know, but my little words are going all the way up there to our Father, who is in heaven. Now, he doesn't live under a rock. He doesn't live, you know, he's not a cloud. He is located somewhere. And you are going into his presence. I find that a very helpful idea uh, in conceiving him. So, that's why the angels appear in the form of men. They said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has received up from you into heaven shall return in like manner, as you saw him go into heaven. You men of Galilee. That means that all the disciples were from Galilee. You men of Galilee. In Acts chapter 2, when they stand up on the day of Pentecost and they start preaching, the people, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, mock them and say, these men are all from Galilee. How are they uh, teaching? They're all from Galilee. But Jesus was from Galilee. He grew up in Nazareth. In Bethlehem, we grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee. And when they, they called him a Galilean, a man from Galilee, and the night when Peter betrays Jesus, they say to Peter, You also are one of them because you have an accent from Galilee. Why this emphasis? These guys are all from Galilee. You see, in Israel, you've got Jerusalem, which is like the capital. And a few other big cities. And then up the north of Israel, you've got the Sea of Galilee and these little villages around it and Nazareth. Now, those villages were tiny. You can go there today to the remains of, for example, Capernaum. There are probably not more than 30 houses there. If that. Just a few extended families. And all these guys were from those villages around the Sea of Galilee. It's not a huge place. You can drive around the Sea of Galilee in about 40 minutes. Circle around. It's not, it's not a huge thing. You can, with a naked eye, you can see from one end of it to the other, from one side of it to the other. It's not that huge. And you think, why did he choose his disciples all from Galilee? Why not more representatively? One from Jerusalem, one from Beersheba. Uh, why all from up, up there? 
Well, Galilee was despised because it was surrounded by Gentiles, by non-Jews, and a lot, there was a lot of intermarriage. They weren't seen as very uh, Jewish, not seen as very um, righteous, and they were laughed at because of their accent. So, <clears throat> he chose all his men from there. It would rather be like if Jesus came to the UK and thought, right, I'm going to choose 12 people to be my special guides, you know. You'd think, oh, well, surely he'd pick a couple from London, a couple from Birmingham, a couple from Manchester, a couple from Glasgow, a couple from Cardiff. But instead, he chose 12 men who lived around a little lake in the Lake District who had very country boy accents, who had never been to London in their lives, who were maybe not pure Brits, but uh, or immigrants, migrants, you know, slightly dodgy, and, uh, you know, not, not, you know, true blue, true blue Brits, you know. You see, that's what he did. He chose 12 men from Galilee who were all sort of under the question mark. Who weren't the true blue Jews. And you see, that's his style. That's his style. That he chooses the people whom man would not choose. He chooses the people whom man would think are the question. You go to Galilee, we were there a few days ago, you can see the cliff over which the pigs jumped when uh, Legion, the madman, who thinks he's got other people inside, he thinks he's other people. This guy is cured, and the demons are thrown into the pigs, and the pigs jump over the cliff. Well, okay, and you can see the caves where the guy lived. He was a seriously mentally disturbed guy. And then almost, well, a mile away from there, not even that, is the little village of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene came from. Mary from Magdala. So, they all knew each other. She was the prostitute. Every village has got a prostitute, right? So she was the prostitute, and she laughed at the fact that he thought, and every village has got someone who's totally stark as crazy, right? So, Legion was the crazy bloke, she was the whore, and they were the two Jesus chose from that area. You think, oh, hey, I wouldn't do that. I would choose, you know, some more upright citizen, to be honest. Yeah. And all his disciples were from Galilee, with their Galilean accents, country boys, dodgy blokes, as it was said. Not very uh, righteous and pious. So it is. Yeah. This is his style. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same style. So, this same Jesus, they say, was received up from you and there and will return in like manner, as you have seen him go there. This same Jesus. Well, as I see it, what he's saying is that the Jesus who walked amongst men with love, who loved little children, who hated religious hypocrisy, and who would die to save you, the Jesus who actually liked eating with prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, and so on. This same Jesus will come back. When he says he will come back in like manner as you saw him go into heaven, 
Yes, it might mean that physically, in the manner in which he ascended. Yes, he was on the Mount of Olives, ascended up, met by angels. In, the, in like manner, he will come back with angels, etc., to the Mount of Olives. Yes, why not? But I think it implies more than that. This same Jesus, in like manner, the same Jesus, who died to save, is the one who's going to come back. Jesus Christ, Paul says, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet everyone's frightened a little bit about the day of judgment. That, alright, you know, he was all nice and died for us and all that, but maybe when he comes back, is he going to show another face? That's all what we're worried about. Is he going to show another face? And of course he won't. You know what it's like when you're in a relationship with someone you think you, you, think you know somebody? Oh, and suddenly, uh-oh, they show another face. You think, oh, you're not like I thought you were. Oh. Jesus is not going to be like that. It's not that you're going to think, oh, hey, you were all nice, you know, nice and smiley and love, yes, love, love hearts everywhere. Oh, I see, but actually you're oh, not quite as lovey-dovey as, as you made out. No. This same Jesus that you'd see go into heaven, will so come in like manner, the same one. So we have nothing to fear in the day of judgment. There's nothing to fear about Jesus. Uh, you, may understand, you may be rightly leery of denominations, churches, religion, all that sort of stuff, because that can go wrong. Oh yes. But there's nothing to go wrong with Jesus himself. Because this same Jesus, who walked amongst men and women, and was as he was, he loved, actually says, he liked eating with prostitutes, tax collectors and sinners. They're ones that, ooh, look who he eats with. This is the Jesus who's coming back. In like manner, the same person. In his personality. He whose eyes are just full of love. I want to save you. This is what Yahushua means. Yah saves. God saves. He who by his nature was a saviour. And what's the save? You see, I'm going to condemn it. What's the save? This is the one who is coming back. This is why I say to anyone who's not yet been baptized into Jesus, be baptized into him. You have nothing to fear, nothing to lose. As long as it's just straight into him, not signing up for some denomination or some club or church rules, bylaws, and so on. You know, very careful and all that stuff. But no, just straight up into him. No regrets. This is. The other, the thing that we will never forget. And so they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem. Well, I said that in like manner, it could mean that he comes, or physically, but he comes back in the same way as he ascended. He ascended, it seems, it's presented here as from the Mount of Olives, and he will come back to it. And in the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament says that the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and there will be an earthquake, and the mountain will divide. The point is that the feet of Jesus of Nazareth, they'll walk the streets and the lanes of Galilee, the small villages around the lake, the streets of Jerusalem. That same Jesus, those same feet in that sense, will stand again upon this earth. And on the Mount of Olives, you can go to Israel, you can see Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, blah, blah. And yet, yeah, he will come back. 
And there's a lot of things in the Bible that are very um, symbolic and figurative. Don't lose sight of these basic and literal things. Very literal. That he will come back. And you see, that's why you can get into relationship with him now. Because he is real. He is there. He is real. He was here. He knows what it's like to be hot, to be cold, to really want a cold drink, or whatever it might be. And he knows all about sinners and their ways and all. He knows. He's seen it all. He's really seen it all. You know, he's like the publican, the guy who runs the bar, who can say, you know what? I was talking to Martin, who used to work here. He said, you know, Duncan, I've seen them all. And you know, he's seen them all. People come and get drunk and do silly things. And yeah, and I was thinking when he said that, 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 that's like Jesus. He's seen them all. He knows what is in man. He knows sin. And he loves us. Not that it's okay. He loves us. He wants to save us. And it is that same Jesus who will come again. And so, well, they all uh, went back to the upper room. That's where they broke bread. Verse 14. The Lord saw with one accord continued earnestly in prayer with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. They had one accord. And I found that phrase many times in the book of Acts. They continued with one accord in prayer. When the day of Pentecost was come, they were all with one accord in one place, continuing daily with one accord, breaking bread, with singleness of heart. They lifted up their voice to God with one accord. They were with one accord in Solomon's porch. So, there is a great unity that is created amongst us based around these things. That this is what binds people together. This is the basis of Christian unity. That you are in relationship with Jesus, with this Jesus, and so am I, and so is she, and so is he, and so is he, so am I. And this is what gives you that unity. Because if I have known you, and you have known me, we are bound together. I'm going to live together with him. And you're going to live together And that's how it is. That we are bound together as one. Because of this. And the bread and the juice... Remind us of that, that we are sitting as guests at his table. And this bread represents his body, and the cup represents his, his blood. And he is here amongst us, absolutely here amongst us. Uh, Mark, I wonder if you'd like to give thanks to the bread and the cup together. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we so thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he has been centres of life into our lives. And in some respects, we are all adults here. And we have lived lives that have been somewhat crazy. And chasing our tails. But you have intervened in our life through the Lord Jesus. And though we may not have been harlots and prostitutes, we have not lived lives devoted our entire lives to you but we've been caught up in other things other than just you as our heavenly father but the Lord Jesus has created in us a heart that desires to be absolutely loyal to you as he was please fill us with the spirit of your son 
So we are not leaving, leading confused lives, but confident lives. Confident in your love. And help us to be as loyal to you as Jesus has been to you and to us. We thank you for his body and his blood and his spirit that fills our lives. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. should be on the way. Um, I want to show them what I did prayer for Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and the food that's coming forth to us today. Bless the week that is ahead of us. Everybody in your name, Jesus, we say. Amen. 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 Amen.